0: Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Chris Alexanderson. She's an Associate Professor at his, of History at the University of Pacific in Stockton, California, just down I-5 from my campus at Sacramento State. She earned her PhD at Rutgers, where she had a rock star dissertation committee chaired by Bonnie Smith and including Michael Addis, Matt Masuda, and Francis Gouda. She also enjoyed a Fulbright for research in the Netherlands as a graduate student. At UOP, she teaches, teaches a variety of courses ranging from world history surveys, to histories of science, medicine, and technology, gender studies, and maritime history. World historians will know that Dennis Flynn and Arturo Geraldes, AKA the Silver Guys, were two of the pioneers of world history and maritime history at the universe, University of the Pacific. And they were really sort of foundational uh, figures in, in creating the, uh, what people have called the California School of World History. So I'm really excited to see that um, uh, Dr. Alexanderson is uh, gonna continue on with um, developing maritime history at UOP. So today we'll be talking about her new book, Subversive Seas, Anti-Colonial Networks Across the 20th Century Dutch Empire, out with Cambridge University Press in 2019. This book, drawn from her doctoral dissertation, has truly excellent research from the Dutch colonial archives. Subversive Seas challenges us to think beyond traditional geographic boundaries. Indeed, it rejects terrestrial centrism, if I can coin a term, I don't know, maybe that is a term already, but terrestrial centrism, focus on the land. And forces us to think about how empire and resistance played out in the Indian Ocean, the Java Sea, the Straits of Malacca, and the South China Sea. She wants us to see history on the seas. Dr. Alexanderson, Chris, if I may, welcome to New Books in History.
1: Thank you so much, Mike. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So before we get into the book, which, which I loved, and, and one of my, again, one of my, uh, my uh, highest in terms of praise is this is a book that made me jealous. It's like, I want to write this book. I want to I do this research. Before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become, uh, become a historian of the maritime Dutch world?
1: Um, well, it was unexpected, I have to say. I actually took my first history class um, by accident. I was planning on being a um, philosophy major as an undergraduate at Bard College in the Hudson Valley in New York. And all of, my, all of the classes were filled up that I wanted and the only class that had space left in it was a history class called Utopias and Dystopias. Um, And so that class really sort of opened my eyes to the discipline of history. And um, it just all of a sudden made the world make sense and helped me to understand my place in the world. I immediately fell in love with history. So I was studying European history. And for my semester abroad during my junior year as an undergraduate, I very much wanted to go to sort of Francophone West Africa. I really wanted to go to Mali. And then when that didn't seem to work out, I wanted to go to Bali. um, Bali,
0: Indonesia. Indonesia?
1: Yes, Bali, Indonesia.
0: Mali or Bali?
1: Yes, exactly. I know. I apparently had some (laughs) (laughs) linguistical theme, Um, but I, I, you know, due to some circumstances beyond my control, I wound up actually going to Europe, to Amsterdam, um, to study abroad program in Amsterdam for the semester, and I began learning Dutch and. As a European history major, I asked myself, why have I never heard anything about Dutch history? I don't know anything about Dutch history, right? It's really not a part of sort of the curriculum in the United States. So that really fueled my interest in learning more about Dutch history. And I continued my language study. I took some classes in the master's program at Leiden University, even though I didn't uh, ultimately get my master's uh, degree from that program, but I spent some time in the Netherlands after undergraduate. And then when I went to graduate school at Rutgers, I thought I was going to be working on more European history, sort of Dutch history. And I was very interested in women's history. Um, And obviously Rutgers was very well known for women and gender history. But instead, Bonnie Smith, my dissertation advisor, was really making sure that all of her graduate students um, looked at Europe in the world. That was mm-hmm. the way that she sort of framed her understanding of European history, and it, she really pushed all of her graduate students into approaching European history in that way. So, I opened up my sort of lens, my perspective to the Dutch Empire. And at Rutgers, at that time, I was the really one of the only people who was working on the Dutch Empire. After I started as a graduate student, we did get a few more people some of whom ha- were from the Netherlands and came to Rutgers to do their graduate work.
0: That's an interesting um, trajectory. Huh.
1: Yes, because yeah. Rutgers had an exchange with Leiden, actually. Oh, okay, so, okay, well that makes sense. Um, you know, so I also was sort of affiliated with Leiden when I went there um, to do some of my graduate research. But all of, the, all of my uh, professors at Rutgers were very, very encouraging about um, my work on the Dutch empire. Michael Addis was very excited about it as the Southeast Asianist himself. And Bonnie Smith, although she does more um, French, French history, she was very supportive. Um, and of course, Matt Matsuda, who yeah, everyone yeah. knows from his work really on the, on the Pacific. I worked very closely with Matt, sort of contextual, uh, you know, theor, theorizing around water around oceans um uh, around you know maritime connections so right. i had yeah. a really he's wonderful so good. he's so
0: good on that what 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 are what are matt masuda's books um uh
1: his uh, his most recent is called yeah. the, the pacific right uh yes and then he has one called um uh love in the in the pacific yeah love about tahiti
0: in,
1: yes yeah. yes yeah i remember i, remember that. I read that
0: um yeah, I no, mean, I absolutely love Matt Masuda's work. It's- yes,
1: yes. So he's he's really he's really wonderful. So I had this great team that I was working with in the Netherlands. My outside dissertation reader was um, Francis um, who's now at the University of Amsterdam. Um, and yeah, she was really wonderful to work with. So that's how I got interested in Dutch history, and the project of of maritime history came about. Um, it was really, and I, I read one article um, many, many years ago about the sort of subculture of gay sailors on board ships running between Is, Stockholm and New York.
0: Was that buggery in the British Navy?
1: Uh, no, no. Okay,
0: there, there, there's, an, artic- there's an article. There's an article. I forget the uh, the author's name, but the, the title was "Buggery in the British Navy," which I was one oh, of the more very amazing journal articles, but this, <laughs> this was on gay subculture um, uh, between Stockholm and New York.
1: Yes. And so, I mean, it was really just a sh- short article, um, but I, it may have sparked my imagination of, Oh, wow. What are these subcultures that are yeah. happening on board yeah. these ships? What's going on on board these ships? So I, you know, after my first year of graduate Study. I went to the Netherlands to the archives, the National Archives in The Hague, and started doing research um, of one shipping company, the KPM, the Kone Leke Paket Mart which was a shipping company that was um, n- mainly transporting both cargo and passengers uh, across the Netherlands, East Indies, colonial Indonesia. Um, and I started looking into their archives to sort of get a feel of what was going on bo- going on on board these ships, and I found those archives to just be so rich and have such amazing detail and description about um, the culture of these colonial ships, of the you know what was actually. Half what was going on in the minds of passengers, and the minds of the crew, and the minds of the shipping company administ- administrators who were based in both Batavia, but also had offices in the Netherlands as well? So I just found that was a, an insight into the richness of um, shipping company archives, yeah. and so that started me on my way, and it sort of grew, grew from there.
0: So in the archives, like what kind of documents were they? And I think you referenced this in the book. I mean, I, something like akin to like a customer satisfaction report, but mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. but also intelligence documents. Like, what are different groups thinking? So, what could you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? A little more on the archives and like what what this stuff yes.
1: like? Yes. So I would say that the archives I use sort of fell into um, three three main categories. One is the shipping company archives. Another are um, Dutch. Colonial government archives, um, you know written largely by colonial administrators and um, the third are consulate archives so I, w- I looked at a lot of Dutch Dutch consulates in these foreign port cities, not within colonial Indonesia but when in other areas of the globe in the Middle East and East Asia, where the Dutch um, had had interest for a variety of different yeah. reasons so the you know, the, the shipping company archives are, I think, and I think, a really overlooked, rich source. When I first approached these archives, I assumed that business archives were more about the economics of yeah, the business yeah. the num- about the numbers right? and the
0: budgets right. and so forth right. Right?
1: accounting and things like that expenditure list salary list things like that but night, I was night, so nightmare wrong.
0: stuff for a graduate student in the archives yeah. right like exactly. you don't you don't you don't want that exactly. project
1: yes yes as a sort of qual as a sort of uh qual- qualitative historian i was very uh nervous about it but that was what was so beautiful about these archives is that the, the comp- these companies, the Dutch shipping companies that I looked at, um, their archives were filled with sort of the day-to-day workings of the company, the day-to-day workings of the ships themselves, the day-to-day activities of the local agents who worked in these very small coastal cities around the globe. You know, so you have these individual people, individual. Customers, so both people who are shipping things, um, you know, passengers, local agents, um, you know, ticket brokers, all of these, um, this this very sort of micro level history of people writing letters to the branch office, you know, in, in Batavia, the branch office in Shanghai, the branch office in Hong Kong, the branch office in... Um, Jada and Aiden, you know, all around, all around the globe, um, you know, giving these very personal stories and testimonies about what they're experiencing um, in their interactions with not just the shipping company itself, but really with the maritime world. Right? Yeah, like that's fantastic.
0: Sort
1: of, yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, and it they're very beautiful sources as well, because of course there are a lot of memoirs of people who went on ships, who took journeys, you know, these sort of, you know, early tourists, you might even call them, who, you know, part of their whole part of their travel experience is writing about it and publishing about it. So you do have a lot of, you have a lot of captains who write their memoirs. So you get um, these kinds of perspectives, but there is something about the shipping company archives, these sort of individual letters and reports so you mentioned before the reports some of these are internal reports where they have sort of um you know employees of the company going undercover to essentially take a trip on a ship and then write back to the administration in the netherlands to say okay i pretended to be a passenger and this is what i oh cool right this is oh that's great this is yeah like this is what i got for breakfast this is how i was treated by the stewards you know this is how long we stayed in the port, this is what I observed of what the other passengers were doing in the first class of, you know, how they were using the the spaces on board. So, um, you know, both the sort of more personal individual documents and also the sort of internal company documents were very clearly never meant to be read in the way that I read them. Right. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, it was yeah. one of the things that made it so special is that you could tell in a sense it was very, um, you know, I was excited about the fact that I could take these documents that really were, were meant to be, they weren't meant to reveal the sort of very, um, this very like cultural, political, social history of Dutch shipping. They were meant to sort of help the company in terms of ultimately mm-hmm. its profit margins but um that's what was something that was so special as a historian was to be able to interpret these sources in these new ways and and tell tell the story from from them
0: oh that's great that uh, that gets that gets me excited about archives (laughs) real real history nerd talk right here but
1: that's
0: (laughs) such a great uh cache of documents Well yes. Um, before we get into the book, let um, let's, let's uh, talk about maritime history as a whole. and I, I mm-hmm. you know I think that many listeners may not um, be that familiar with maritime history and even know what it is. And um, mm-hmm. so I gotta tell you and a little personal aside here um, that one of my daydreams, and I still do this from time to time um, was to be a maritime historian rather than working on sewer rats, right? and you know i uh, i grew up on boats in honolulu my dad was a university professor but he was also a a ship captain and he actually bounced back and forth between careers and so I, i literally grew up on boats and when i was going to applying to grad school my fallback fallback plan if i didn't get in anywhere was to go back to oahu and work on boats um and then once i got into graduate school nobody ever mentioned to me that maritime history was a field and um you know, back then it probably wasn't much of a field. And, mm-hmm. and also, uh, today, um, it was actually my, uh, my, adv- uh, graduate school advisor, uh, Tyler Stovall, it was his birthday and as a good Confucian, I had to give him a call and I chatted with him and I told him about this podcast and about your book. And he was saying, yeah, you know, this, there's so many exciting things that can be done with maritime history now. And he was thinking about it in terms of the history of the radical left and how important mm-hmm. that is in the 20th century. And you, you touch on this and in one of your chapters touch, you engage this in one of your chapters. Mm-hmm. So, there's, there's, you know, those of us who aren't in anywhere near the field of maritime history are, are pretty excited about uh, new developments here. So, so, let's start with the basics. What is maritime history, and, and what can you tell us about maritime history? And what are the kinds of questions like this sort of new maritime history is, uh, is asking these days?
1: Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because maritime history actually means something different to different people. Yeah, because yeah. Um, one of the things that is so intriguing about maritime history is that it's a topic that can take you from the very sort of local or really sort of, you know, um, very small historical local stories into these sort of worldwide global networks. And I have found that to be one of the, one of the um, most sort of compelling things about doing this kind of research is that you can really combine these different types of stories, right? The sort of individual experience into sort of the really um, large, huge global picture of these global networks. So I would say that um, for me, at least, I definitely am interested in these transnational networks, I'm interested in essentially the ways that oceans become important historical spaces in and of themselves. So this take on on maritime history is sort of part of a larger development in maritime history that has really, I think, kind of gotten rolling since the early 2000s. Um, So, you know, for the last 20 years, we've seen a real growing and blossoming of the field of people who are looking at these kinds of networks, these kinds of connections. They're trying to trace movements of people, movements of ideas, also movements of commodities as well, right? So these are stories not just about people, it's about the story of of things, the movement of things, it's about the, the movement of ideas. So I would say that sort of the new maritime history is is a field that is really looking to um, explore global history um, using this particular lens um, of the maritime world. And for me personally, I think that's so important because one of the main things that I try to argue in this book is that the ocean very often is seen as the sort of in-between space, this non-space where essentially it's just the place of transportation between land masses or terrestrial zones where the real history takes place. Right. right?
0: history is on pause on the water and then restarts on land. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. And so part of what I'm trying to argue in this book is that water oceanic space in and of itself is a very important part of global history um that is separate really from its connection to, to terrestrial lands, that you can look just at what's happening on board ships within oceanic spaces and you can write a whole new part of global history that really needs to be incorporated into you know more sort of traditional um terrestrial based uh histories or sort of nation-based histories so you know the oceanic world in terms of its um, role in global history is very interesting too because when you start looking at sort of port cities you see that port cities are such important um, spaces because they exist both sort of locally within nation states and then within these global networks that very often are exist somewhat independently from the nation state in which port city is situated and i would argue that um people who participate in the maritime world, right, either as maritime laborers or as um, passengers, as travelers, that uh, as traders, that these people also exist in these very sort of, in a way, hybrid spaces, where they both have these sort of local entities, they have connections with nation states, but they also are part of this sort of semi-autonomous, semi-autonomous, global space you know their global selves
0: yeah yeah um, and, is, and can create new cultures from this hybridity I, I think of yeah. um um Amitif Ghosh novels uh the Ebus mm-hmm. trilogy I am um, yeah. I teach a world history survey for graduate students historiography and I have them read two of the three Amitif Ghosh novels and mm-hmm. one of the things that we talk about is the the culture of the Lascars and and who are they and their. Yeah they're from everywhere and they're from nowhere. And they're there. He does so much with language in that first novel. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's this mishmash of Malay and Hindi and Urdu and English and French. And, mm-hmm. and it really is a, a new thing created by the phenomenon of, um, of the maritime world. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. 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 I know. I also have my students in my maritime history class read Sea of Poppies. Yeah. That. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And the students are always so they, they, they come out of that book just with their their imaginations are sparked by just the vivid descriptions. And it's a really wonderful, it's a wonderful trilogy.
0: Yeah. I, I had them I had them read the first two of uh, the novels of this cycle. And then um, Maya Jasanoff's book, The Dawn mm-hmm. Watch on Joseph Conrad. Mm-hmm. And then, um, which is, is a really good entry into sort of thinking about the culture of the maritime world. Yeah. And then um, uh, Eric, uh,
1: Tagliacozzo. Yeah, excuse Tagliacoso. me, <laughs>
0: <Tagliacoso>. <laughs> Um his book on the Hajj and the mm-hmm. Southeast Asians and the Hajj, um, which uh, is very similar to uh, some of the things you do and just opens up yeah. this new world that like, I mean, is literally makes a mockery of the lines we draw on a map. Like if you yeah. just work with nation state or empire boundaries, you are not going to understand what's going on. Yeah, exactly. So, Great. Well, let's, let's get into the book. So um, uh, Subversive Seas is organized into two parts. Very, very tidy, organized book. I love that. (laughs) I love that. Two parts of three chapters each. Um, But what's the overall argument for, uh, from Subversive Seas?
1: So the overall argument is kind of what I was just um, talking about. It's really to look at the ocean and ocean oceans as um, important colonial spaces in and of themselves that those are spaces where colonial culture and politics are not just sort of exist but are created right that that um, oceanic spaces are part of uh, an important part of the colonial system more broadly, not just in terms of um, shipping's importance to sort of the economic side of the colonial project, but also in terms of the social, cultural, and political side. So that's sort of uh, the overall kind of, um, you know, lens that I'm looking at. And then within that, I'm also really trying to show the importance of businesses, of shipping businesses, shipping companies, within the colonial project. So very often shipping companies are largely described in terms of their facilitation of, especially for an empire like um, colonial Indonesia, the Dutch empire, and especially in Southeast Asia and colonial Indonesia, which is a massive archipelago, it relies it relied so heavily on shipping to sort of make the, co- the colony run and to make yeah. it profitable. Yeah for the Dutch, right? So shipping, of course, was very important in that aspect. And many people have talked about shipping sort of more in those terms, but less has been written about the ways that colonial businesses were influenced by the sort of culture of imperialism. Mm-hmm. And in essence, I'm, I'm trying to look at businesses and the people who make the, the decision-making processes within businesses as being very... Um, determined by those administrators, those captains, those officers, by their position within um, imperial hierarchies more broadly. So I'm interested in the way that colonial businesses and specifically colonial shipping companies work together, work hand in hand with the colonial administration to sort of set up these systems of of, uh, hegemonic hierarchies that are meant to sort of protect the integrity of the imperial project from, um, you know, any kind of growing nationalism, from growing unrest, um, from especially in the Netherlands, this sort of fear of Outside influences coming from other areas of the globe and influencing what the Dutch categorize as this sort of naive group of colonial subjects or colonial Indonesians, um, and so you know what's interesting about this is looking at the ways that the that shipping companies work together very explicitly with the colonial government to sort of set up these very rigid surveillance networks, rigid policing networks rigid hierarchical systems to try and keep everyone in line, including their own employees, including um, passengers on board their ships. And ultimately, this is a reflection of this Dutch belief, especially in the 1920s and 30s, that the contiguous zone around the Indonesian archipelago is seen as this very dangerous space. And it's so dangerous because um, the sort of Dutch opinion at this time, the sort of Dutch administrative opinion, but also the opinion of Dutch um, uh, businesses was that the Indonesia was um, vulnerable to these outside influences, right? And in my book, I sort of trace part of the surveillance projects that are developed very intensively during the 1920s and 30s are looking specifically... At pan-islamism they're looking at communism they're looking at different other forms of nationalism they're looking at pan-asianism they have you know these specific categories within the dutch surveillance network within colonial indonesia that they're really looking out for and the overall idea of it is that these sort of anti-colonial ideologies are not coming from the Indonesian people themselves, that they're not actually reflective of the, short, the shortcomings of the Dutch um, colonial system, that actually these are sort of outside agitators that are influencing colonial Indonesians into sort of going along with this anti-colonial stance. You know, Ann Stoller, I, I mentioned this phrase in my book, Ann Stoller uses this um, phrase of the phantom of external agi- agitation, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, really alive and well in not just the government archives that I look at, but also in the shipping company archives, right? the shipping companies have the same sort of um, mantra that's happening as as the administrative circles, that we have to protect our nation, that we have to keep control over people on board, that we have to police the waters, we have to set up intensive surveillance on board our ships. So um, yeah, so that's a large part of what I'm looking at. And then of course, I'm also looking at what what is causing all of this paranoia, all of this fear, all of this intensive growth in surveillance that happens in the interwar period. And I am looking at the ways that colonial subjects and other people actually use the ocean and use these maritime networks and use these global connections to actually grow these anti-colonial networks, right? right. So it's both um,
0: empire and resistance at play in these yes, ships. Yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. So I'm sort of tracing both sides of this story.
0: Great, great. Yeah. Well, let, let's so let's get into the chapters. Um, okay. The the first chapter is about the Kongsi Tiga um, uh, shipping line and its relationship to the Haj. Um, in and this is directly related to what you were just saying and you talk about the security and insecurity. So tell us about Dutch shipping and the hajj.
1: Yes. So, um, as 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 you probably know, um, you know, Indonesia, um, historically, has had sort of one of the largest populations of hajis who, um, traveled to, um, to the port of Jada historically. And so the Dutch had a very, um, they had a very intricate history with um you know colonial indonesians and southeast asians more broadly going to the hajj beginning in um you know the eight the 1800s when the dutch are very fearful of this movement for the most part they as i uh, talk about in my book there are these numerous um laws that get enacted that are trying to sort of control this movement and this flow and by the end of the 1800s, you have these shipping companies that are ultimately looking to profit financially from this movement. And the, ship, the three shipping companies that make up the Kongzi Tiga these are the Rotterdam Lloyd, the Stonevaart Maatschappij Nederland, and the Stonevaart Maatschappij Ocean. Um, these three shipping companies work very closely with the Dutch government to set up a total monopoly over the shipping of hajis from colonial Indonesia to um, the Middle East. So the Dutch government and shipping companies, because the fears of this group are sort of growing in the 1920s, and a lot of what I write about in my book is sort of this um, moment that happens after 1926 and 1927 when you have these sort of uprisings that happen in Java, West Java and Sumatra. Um, that are essentially you have one one European is killed, but in the aftermath of this, you have thousands of um, Indonesians who are persecuted. It's Many the, are the, the colonial
0: arithmetic of uh, racialized yeah. violence, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So thousands of people are um, not just jailed, but sent away to um, Boven Digoel, which is like a concentration camp.
0: And in um, in uh, Dutch New Guinea, I mean, it's, yes. and on, it's, on, it's even on the Pacific side, right? It's, yes, it's yes. about as far away as you yeah. can get in the Dutch yes. Empire from uh, yeah. Batavia, yeah. Jakarta. Yeah,
1: so you can think, on think on. of it as sort of like technically internal exile,
0: Yeah, right? Yeah. Like
1: you're yeah. essentially exiled. So thousands of people are exiled. In and this, this, upri-
0: this uprising was a, what so kind of uprising? This-
1: yeah. It's it's an interesting story. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, the Dutch government pays to have an investigation done, largely with the people who end up being interned in um, in Boven and those investigations show that that largely people have are very um, dissatisfied with different tax with the taxation system that's going on and sort of the um, the breakdown of systems of of local government so that they feel that they're unable to sort of um, have their voices heard so that's what the testimony is but the dutch administration doesn't believe that testimony they actually actively say mm, they say this but i don't think that's what it's really about we actually think that this is really about largely about communism mm-hmm and that this is an extension of some of these other labor labor protests that we've seen in the years that have led up to this, right? So this wasn't the first sort of, uh, you know, this wasn't the first pr- pr- protest that happened um, in the colonies, but they see it as an extension of this la- of labor protests that are largely fueled by sort of international communism, and also maybe influenced by um, Pan-Islamist ideology, um, largely influenced by returning hajis, right? So that is the colonial in, um, interpretation of what happens, despite the fact that actually people who participated in this, that's not what they are saying, right? They're saying something different. So. Um, the, I, the idea is because of this idea of the external agitation coming in and influencing Indonesians and not being this homegrown protest movement or homegrown desire for national, for national independence, the Dutch government is, believes that um, many people escaped persecution after this, that the main sort of, in, the important people actually escaped before they were caught before they could be internally exiled and they got on board ships and went all around the globe so a big focus is that they believe many of these agitators got on board these haji ships and went to the middle east and are now in the middle east living in the jawa communities of mecca And essentially, you know, growing their strength and their forces by, um, you know, communing with other um, nationalists from all around the globe who are who are based in Mecca and also farther field in places like Cairo as well, who are in these sort of educational institutions that are believed to be hotbeds of you know nationalism and anti-colonialism and subversive ideology.
0: And and so, Al Azan is Al University in Al yeah Al-Azar,
1: in Cairo yeah mm-hmm. so that's a, that's one of their major um, yeah. focuses that they look at but then also the sort of more the, some of the smaller um, schools and teachers who are actually within Mecca one of the so you know part of this book looks at that sort of connection it looks at you know the first chapter looks at what was actually happening on board these Hajj ships in the years following 1926 and 27? And there's a huge surge in the number of Hajjis who travel from the Middle from Southeast Asia to the Middle East in these years, largely because these are the years after you know all of the, 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 the fighting that was happening in the Middle East in the years in 1924, 1925, where essentially the Dutch weren't actually sending any ships. Um, for the hajj. So there was a you know a surplus of people who were wanting to go. But the Dutch administration interpreted this as these are all of these people escaping the crackdown after these uprisings mm. Um, mm. in Java and Sumatra. That's their opinion of it. So um, they're very openly in communication with the kongsi Tiga shipping lines, with these three shipping lines, being like, we want you to be on the lookout for these people, right? So we want you. To, we want your European captains and your European officers to essentially police and surveil ships, the ship spaces. Um, We are very concerned with Hadrami Arabs who are not considered sort of ordinary pilgrims. They are part of this, you know, a Hadrami community that's very transoceanic and travels back and forth between the Middle East and Southeast Asia. They're very concerned that the Hadrami Arabs are going to be um, bad influences on the regular, on the ordinary pilgrims. So they ask them to be separated on board. Um, they, you know, we have, you know, so uh, so a lot of what um, the first part of my book is about is the way that ship spaces themselves are controlled. So it's about sort of segregation on board what and how that's done and what that's meant to accomplish in the eyes of the shipping companies and their partners, sort of the Dutch colonial administration. Um, And then ways that people that colonial subjects push back against these sort of um, this sort of policing and surveillance on board. So for instance, um, on the Haas ships, I look at the ways that Hajis themselves, because there are three different shipping companies that partake in this monopoly, right, they work together in this monopoly, there are slight differences between the three companies and the, the you know, pilgrims themselves actually begin choosing, you know, one shipping company over the other two because they're offering better food on board because- Consumer choice, Right. Exactly. Like they really, you know, so I argue that their consumer power actually does make the other two shipping companies in the, in the threesome change some of their, um, their policies, actually, and improve the food that they have on board to improve some of the spaces. They start building newer ships to make things more comfortable. So that's sort of one example of, of, of this kind of pushback. But, you know, in terms of Hajj shipping, another thing that I write about is um, an attempt of the um, Islamic organization Muhammadiyah in Indonesia to start their own Hajj shipping line to have that um, under the control of of, um, Muslims themselves, right? That was a big um, push by Muhammadiyah that they wanted the sort of Hajj shipping not to be in the hands of these sort of foreigners, not to be in Dutch hands, but try themselves. And um, the shipping companies essentially use their clout with the colonial government to pass these laws that essentially make it impossible for any other group to start a shipping line besides these three Dutch right, shipping lines. Right. You no, know, so
0: just the, the answer may be no, or you, you don't know, but um, do the Muhammad Muhammadia um uh. Members who are talking about creating their own uh, Muslim-owned shipping line, are they aware of Marcus Garvey and uh, his experiments with the? Uh, that's
1: the, a good the Red, question. Red Star, Black
0: Star Shipping Line.
1: Yeah, Um, I, I'm actually not totally sure. I'm be, not totally. That would be sure. a really
0: interesting comparison. I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't mean yeah. to sat, <laughs> throw a question out of left field at you, but that's <laughs> yeah. really interesting. You know, that kind of yeah. just flashed on me.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the good thing about this project is that it opens up many new avenues of research that, you know, can, that are, that are ripe for the picking. They're ready. They are ready to be taken on. So this is exactly the kind of, uh, question that I'm excited to hear about, right? This project gets people to think about these, these global connections and to sort of ask these questions and actually look into them. So I like that
0: question. (laughs) So, okay. So that chapter one takes us west to, uh, to the Arabian Peninsula and the Red Sea. Chapter two takes us north from the oh. Dutch East Indies to China and Japan. Um, and in this chapter on the Java, China, Japan lines, you, you look at um, so-called coolies and Chinese markets and um, Dutch shipping um, interacting with the larger um, East Asian maritime world. Can you say a few words on that?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, so the java china Japan line was uh, both a cargo and passenger um line, and they you know this was I really see this as being such an interesting part of this book because there's so much happening in this period of the 1920s and thirties in the connections between Southeast Asia and East Asia and China. and Japan. a lot of these
0: ships are going to Shanghai too, which is yes it's this, this incredibly important site in the 1920s and 30s
1: yes exactly um so i found these this research just to be so interesting and also in large part because so little has been written about this shipping company mm. um so franz paul um van der is somebody who has written about the jcjl um in in context of other dutch businesses in china but really like this level of detail, no one has ever sort of investigated this shipping company in this way. And it just is so interesting because it says so much about the position of Western, really Western imperialism, but specifically the Dutch empire within Asia, right? Of like, how is this, you know, how are these Dutch, how is this Dutch um, colony actually interacting with other areas? of Asia. And so, you know, this was, you know, China was such an important market for, you know, all, you know, all of these, your, all of these Western um, businesses, right? China was just such an important market that there was so much um, competition happening for these foreign companies trying to get their sort of their, their leg up on each other in terms of getting, Um, you know, larger percentages, larger percentages of um, trade, of shipping. Um, And so this Dutch shipping line, you know, part of what I talk about in the first part at sea, right, it's about the ships themselves, is how this Dutch shipping company tried to maximize its profits through changing its passengers from being, um, you know, essentially indentured laborers, these coolies, into Pay, you know, paying customers. More of this idea of actually a paying customer, a passenger who wasn't just a steerage passenger, but also could be a second class or first class passenger. And also, this coincided with changes in Dutch, uh, Dutch, Dutch laws right in the beginning of the 1930s in terms of the use of indentured labor. So that was um, a, a change that happened, actually, largely from pressure from outside of the Netherlands, the Netherlands, like the historical memory of this is that people said, oh, we, you know, we realized that indentured servitude was like not right. We got rid of the, uh, penal, the penal, penal sanction, which essentially was this very harsh disciplinary law against um, anyone who sort of pushed back against their, in, um, their servitude, their indentured contract. That, you know, that was largely changed due to sort of more international pressure, actually. The, United, the U.S. Congress actually had a big role in pressuring um, the, the colonial governments to sort of do away with this kind of type of labor. So the, this shipping company sort of takes advantage of this moment by reconceptualizing their place within sort of passenger service um, in, in Asia. And a big part of this is, is trying to infiltrate Chinese markets in new ways so they come up with all of these ideas they try and teach some of their employees how to teach how to speak chinese right how to do they they focus on the mandarin dialect and they have people who study for a year in leiden or in local schools in um china and they you know are trying to they're trying to you know phase out the middlemen who are so fundamental in terms of these trading networks, both in Indonesia and in China, right? it's Like this really fundamental part of the way that cargo is moved back and forth. The shipping company spends all of this time and energy trying to figure out ways to like get rid of this, this level of, you know, what they see as interference and being able to, to sort of profit from trade. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess we're we're not quite at part two yet, but I but you know part two, the second part of the book where I look at port cities, that's when we get to sort of the the importance of Shanghai, and I look at the um, I look at the 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 um, the consulate in the Dutch consulate in Shanghai is actually being this sort of very important place of um, surveillance over you know, the movement of all of these Indonesian um, maritime workers who are traveling back and forth of these Indonesian passengers and also of Chinese passengers and Chinese laborers who are moving back and forth. To Indonesia. But we can maybe talk about that
0: in a minute. There's a lot in that chapter, and it's so rich and so fascinating. <laughs> and, and also an, another another personal indulgence, my my grandfather and uh, his sister, my great aunt lived in Shanghai in the twenties and the thirties and, wow. and, um, uh, he was a Naval officer and, and yeah. they were, I mean, I just reading this stuff. I like, I, I know that like my family was moving around in these networks. I mean, they were they were being evil imperialists, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but that, <laughs> I, I loved, I loved the discussions about Shanghai. Um, the, and then the next chapter, um, chapter three, um, also I thought was just so fascinating and so rich. And in this chapter, you talk about the experience of the Dutch, um, and 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 other other white Europeans on the mail lines and on the passenger ships. And you argue that the passenger liners were colonial classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean, like the, What do you mean by this? And how did life on a ship teach imperial norms to these European passengers?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the Dutch mails, which are essentially the Stomwart Mads Nederland and the Rotterdam Lloyd are traveling between Europe and through the Mediterranean, through the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean onto um, Southeast Asia. And, and, and
0: stopping at various ports along the way, right? Is yes. It,
1: yes. Yeah. Yes. So they sort of pick up and drop off passengers and cargo at all of these ports along along the way. And um, essentially, the way I see see these passenger liners as being spaces where both Europeans and sort of Indonesians who are working on board these ships are sort of taught or reminded of the colonial hierarchies that they are expected to submit to once they arrive in Southeast Asia. Um, And they do this in a number of ways. So the first way I argue is that um it, Europeans themselves who sort of i i see themselves as sort of a disparate group of of people right based largely on sort of their national their 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 nation state in europe on the ship they are like taught how to be to see themselves as being part of a unified group that is largely based on um uh, racially right uh, um And they do this largely through sort of othering the the Indonesians and other non-Europeans who are on board the ship who are traveling in um, the lower classes on board. So for instance, you have stewards, Indonesian stewards and rice babos or sort of travel nannies that look over Mm. the children on board of the passengers who are traveling in the first and second classes. and there is you know part of the the part of the selling of why you should take a dutch liner opposed to a french liner or german liner british liner is that you get practice actually sort of commanding these Indonesians on board so when you are, your
0: Malay yes, your Marasa, yes. yeah so uh. when
1: you get on board you get a little booklet that has you know the rules of the ship and it has some of the important dates of when the captain's dinner is when the when the masquerade ball will be it has the list of names of the other passengers so you can plan your dinners and your leisure events and then it also has a list of Malay commands that you're supposed to use with these I mean this is, this isn't just
0: paper. some postmodern metaphoric classroom I mean this yeah. is literally a classroom they're learning some basic servant malay right
1: yes yes so that's one aspect of it also uh european passengers are invited to view lower class passengers in the third and sometimes fourth classes the non that
0: that was mind-boggling for me yeah Yeah. so, so, so speak more on that they About about the viewing passengers.
1: Yeah. So it was a common, it was a it was common that for the Europeans in the first and second classes, the captain would come and take you on a tour of the third classes and sometimes fourth classes, but more often third classes. And the third class did have Europeans in it, but it was separated into the European side and what they called the Asian side. And you would get led by the captains in those quarters to sort of look at and view and ogle out and gaze at these non-Europeans who essentially had paid their tickets. I mean, they were paying passengers, but, and all of these passengers in their memoirs wrote about like what they saw there. And they, they talk about it in these really exoticized ways of, you know, you know the crazy scenes and the smells and the sights and the colors and people had animals with them. There were parrots around. I mean, it was it was part of the leisure um, activity on board these ships. It was built into it. But but what I argue is that there's a larger meaning to this, right? And the meaning of this is to basically, essentially, be able to other um, the sort of non the non Westerner. And to get used to that, to get comfortable with that, and also to have it sanctioned, essentially, yeah, by the captain yeah, of the ship. Yeah, yeah. So that's another part of of <laughs> what was happening
0: on yeah. board. These ships. When when I read that section, I you know, I, as a historian of empire, I did my you know usual. Oh my gosh, this is this is why I have to. We have to study imperialism. Look how awful this yeah. stuff was. It's So, you know. <laughs> Different, but then I, I thought about some of my experiences um, traveling in Indonesia over the course of uh, thirty years, and taking ferries and uh, out to the the Mentawai Islands, or the back in the old days, the ferry over to Lombok, and the the reactions of other Western uh, American and European and Australian passengers towards the Indonesian travelers, and it was, you know, I mean, I, at the time I was really struck, and I remember this is this neo-colonial gaze and um, mm-hmm. that the these people are part of the show of traveling yeah. in contemporary Indonesia, yeah. just as these people were part of the show of traveling in the uh, the colonial empire a yeah. hundred yeah. years ago, yeah. right? Exactly. Just,
1: there are so there, there was a great,
0: incredible resonance with aspects yeah. of neocolonialism in contemporary uh, travel in Southeast yeah. Asia.
1: Yes. And tour, you know, tourism has so, there's, there's so much, I think neocolonialism colonialism in the way that tourism works. As a, oh yeah. As a global <laughs> oh yeah. yeah.
0: Hey, I'm, I'm so, from Hawaii. You don't have to tell me that. Right.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, um, the,
0: yeah. the, the section, the section in there on, um, uh, throwing coins off the ship and, and, yeah. and, um, people diving for the coins. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I did that as a child. Yeah, <laughs> I was the di- I was the diver. I dove you're for the colonial. diver. That's it, was, it was primarily Japanese tourists, so I guess. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. That's really um. amazing. That you doing that. Yeah, I mean, but you know, part of chapter three also is about the sort of the pushback, right? So this isn't just about sort of the colonial, the the omnipotence, you know, gaze of the Europeans, because the last part of this chapter I talk about the local what were called local pleasure cruises once you arrived in colonial Indonesia on local KPM steamers, um, some of which were only meant for, some of which would be outfitted specifically for tourists, and some of them were also cargo ships that tourists would sort of be on. But I talk about the ways that sort of Indonesians harness this gaze as a way to sort of profit from it as well, right? So it's it's also about the sort of early development of the tourist industry Mm -hmm. and the ways that Indonesians develop their own tourist industry by essentially pretending and setting up these, um, these staged like events of what the europeans want to see which very often revolves around this concept of like wild people and very exotic exoticism they want to see you know chickens with their heads getting cut off they want to see half you know women like topless women who are walking around they want to see all of these exoticized ideas that they have about southeast asia more broadly and 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 colonial indonesia and, and really and very a lot of it happens also within Bali as well, right, um, that, you know, I also say that this is a moment when, like, the, the Europeans are essentially duped, right? They're, they're always on the hunt for this authenticity, and they always want this authenticity, but the entire thing is just, you know, staged, and ultimately, Indonesians are, you know, financially benefiting from this performance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thing. No, I I, yeah. I thought that was a fabulous discussion. That chapter, I really really loved yeah. that chapter. Um, yeah. so the the next uh, section of the book is called Import you know, at at Sea and Import. Um, and the first chapter discusses Dutch anxieties about pan-Islamism and it's sort of, uh does a bit of a callback to uh, the first chapter. Um, what were the Dutch worried about? You you talked about this a bit already, but what were the Dutch worried about, and how did they respond to um, perceived Islamist threats?
1: Yeah, so essentially, the, the, the fear was that Haji's who go to the Middle East, many of them spend uh, extended periods of time in not just Mecca, but further field in places like Cairo um, and some other um, areas around the Middle East. Largely, um, you know, many young people go and they, they, have, they have a few years of education, Islamic-based education while they're there. And when they return to Indonesia, you know, these these hajis who return are very revered members of their society. They're very important members of their local community. Often often local communities have pooled their money together to be able to send this person there. So they come back as very important, respected uh, people in local communities. And one of the concerns for the Dutch was that in Mecca, you were around this global group of Muslims, many of whom were not, were not living under European imperialism, many of whom had more developed nationalist, um, nationalist um, ideologies and nationalist movements in their own country, right? Um, one of the fears about, about Egypt, about Cairo and Specifically was that, you know, this like Egyptian nationalism was rub off on the students who were at Al-Azhar and um, and other local um, Educational institutions. So the fear was that these people would come back very um, knowledgeable about global Islamic uh, pan-Islamic nationalism and would be able to share those ideas and educate local communities in Uh, Colonial Indonesia. That was sort of the fear, right? So the idea was, how do we stop this from happening? And so the Dutch are trying to surveil these people, to surveil the students um, and other part members of the Jawa community who um, are learning with these local these local teachers and these local Islamic schools in Mecca, one of the big problems is that, of course, that, you know, Dutch people themselves, these Christian Dutch people, can't go into Mecca, right? They're very much um, sequestered to Jeddah, And so they were, the consulate there hires, there's only one Dutch person who works at the consulate, that's the head consul, all their other staff are Indonesian. And they, part of the jobs of the vice consul, who is Indonesian, is always Indonesian, is to go in on these like spying trips essentially these information gathering surveillance trips to go into mecca to interview people to see what people are doing what are they learning who are they interacting with they send members of the consulate to cairo they send members to the consulate on tours around the middle east on these large trips that are months long to go figure out where are our colonial subjects? What are they doing? What are they up to? Who are they talking to, right? Like when are they planning on coming back to the colony and what are they planning on doing once they return? So there's this very intricate um, surveillance network that essentially gets spread out um, connecting the maritime world to sort of these these port cities, right? So what I'm trying to do in chapter 2 is to is to show how the maritime world because it connects these sort of global networks the Dutch administration is trying to surveil not just the oceanic spaces but also the port cities when they arrive and consulates the Dutch consulates are a large way of how this happens. Yeah. So yeah, that's the great. big yeah the big takeaway of this section of the book is that you know colon- in the imperial project of policing surveillance control this doesn't just exist within the confines of the colony these are global projects that are actively like spreading out like a sort of you know a, fl- a flood or <laughs> oozing out from the colonial confines to these sort of global networks right so um in then the next chapter, I sort of, I follow the same the same sort of networks in Shanghai, right? Yeah, of how-
0: let's, let's get into that. Let's get into that. that's yeah. a, The next chapter is about um, uh, anti-communist stuff. And, and this is, yeah. uh, again, I'm so jealous of your archival experience here because you did some incredible research on this cloak and dagger stuff, the espionage yeah. and counter espionage, yeah. and how are the Dutch consuls and intelligence services figuring out what these communist uh, uh groups are up to, particularly the Chinese yeah. communists. So so tell us about uh chapter five and the um yeah. how the Dutch are confronting communism in the maritime world.
1: Yeah. I mean chapter five is really interesting, in large part because a lot of the sources that I used are from the, you know, what were known as sort of like the secret archives, secret government archives. They're called the secret archives. <laughs> um, but they're not secret anymore, obviously. But <laughs> Um, so a, a, big, a big project of the Dutch consulate in Shanghai was to interview um, these maritime laborers who worked, for seamen essentially, seamen who worked on board Dutch ships and who the Dutch government rightly so assumed were part of these global communist networks. Many of them were part of these global communist networks. Like, they, that's some of the amazing things about these testimonies. So essentially, the, when a, when, a seaman, when an Indonesian seaman comes up against hard times, they would approach the consulate to help them either monetarily or if something had gone wrong with their papers, they would need to go there to, like, get their papers fixed. And, of course, this is an increasing period in the late 1920s and 1930s where, you know, your documents become, become necessary, yeah, right? Like yeah. Adam, Adam
0: McEwen's written about this.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you now have these seamen who, like previously, wouldn't have needed to have so much documentation, and sometimes are caught in these situations where they need to get documents. They need to approach the consulate. So, all of the seamen who wind up approaching the consulate for the variety of reasons wind up being interrogated by the consular staff, and you have these wonderful descriptions of what they've been doing like what they've been up to and of course you know as a historian you you need to take these sort of a little bit with a grain of salt um but they still are very telling because a lot of these people and some of them uh they do wind up uh coercing some of them to, to be more revealing about their connections with communism we do you know a lot of the some of the reports talk about their time at the KUTV in Moscow, the Communist University for Toilers in the Far East, which mm-hmm. was essentially this training university for people yeah. from, from Asia, largely Southeast Asia.
0: Such a great university name. Um, yeah. I to see that on a, on a sweatshirt. Um,
1: yeah. do, you know, do you know what their mascot
0: was? I don't
1: know. <laughs> we should think of one. I what did the, the
0: university bookstore I had for <laughs> know, university <laughs> swag in the yeah. to- University of the yeah. Toilers yeah. in the Far East? yeah what kind of mug
1: would you what kind of coffee mug would you have <laughs> um that could be the our next you know the next <laughs> um but in any event, so you know some of the in the appendix of the book, I have one um testimony from a seman named kamu who just lives the most amazing life like he goes from you know he's from uh you know he's from from colonial indonesia he travels around the world he travels to new york there are people who travel like all through india they work for circuses they join the american communist party then they make their yeah, way he joined, back he to, joins
0: the american communist party i mean that was yeah amazing
1: yeah yeah and then, and then they like was, was he
0: the one who wound up working for a circus that went to iraq at one point
1: yes 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 I mean, in iraq yes yes what iraq india yes so that the, so it is really I mean as a historian it's like amazing to look at these and um, and also because you know we have we have the the memoirs of sort of the more um, well well known um, communist um, you know in, Indonesian communist activists and nationalists you know Tan mm-hmm. Darsono like we we have their words and their experiences but seeming like this are, this is, this is the only way that you are going to get at these um, sort of recollections, right, mm-hmm. is through this sort of colonial archive. And so I think that they're a very important so- source, even though they do need to be taken, you know, read sort of against the grain and, and contextualized, certainly. But still, I think it's so important for these, like, sort of, you know, just more ordinary seamen to have their stories told, their voices Absolutely. told.
0: And, and um, because, Ho, Ho Chi Minh, yeah. Ho Chi Minh, when he was Nguyen like, Ai and uh Tat Tan, he he worked as a as a merchant on these ships.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: a merchant sailor. I mean,
1: yeah, it's it's amazing. So a lot of the chapter chapter five is about this. It's it's also about what what actually was found on board, like what was the you know what kind of propaganda was being mm-hmm. found on board the weapons, the armaments and weapons, guns, ammunition that was found on board and being smuggled. Um, So I do a lot of description of that. And then the end of the chapter talks about a really interesting case, which also, as far as I know, has has only been discussed in um, the Chinese literature very briefly. Um, It's a case of a um, sexual assault that takes place on board a Dutch ship that one of the J.C.J.L. ships um, in 1930-30, uh, the scandal takes place in 1930-31, it's called the Xiao case, and it's about a woman named Xiao Xianyan, who um, essentially is sexually assaulted by two Dutch officers on board a Dutch ship, and the word of this assault sort of makes it off of the ship from um, one of the local Um, local you know, one of the members of local Chinese community in colonial Indonesia, it gets picked up by the Chinese media, it gets picked up by the Indonesian media, it gets picked up by all this media, and it it takes on this life of its own, where it starts off where you have a lot of um, pushback from Chinese media saying, you see, this is what happens when we let Western influences Come in. This woman essentially was acting like a Western woman. And she yeah, essentially, she's a, you know, she's, essentially, a, she's
0: a Chinese woman on her way to Ambon to be a teacher, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And so um, they, you know, are so, sort of start blaming her of like she's taken on Western airs and essentially mm-hmm. victim blaming her. And then it sort of transforms into. Um, these, uh, it turns into a boycott of Dutch shipping in Amoy, which is, um, Xiemen today. Mm-hmm. And when that was Amoy, it turns into this boycott of all the shipping and the people who are the group that is boycotting Dutch shipping essentially turns this sexual assault into an example of the ways that Dutch colonialism is assaulting the Chinese nation. Mm -hmm. Um, And the group that also, they're also supported by the Chinese Siemens union and a bunch of different local agents. They, uh, they essentially write to um, the the company and to the Dutch government and to the Chinese nationalist government with this list of demands that they want. And they want, the Dutch, you know, treaty that had been passed in the 1860s to be revoked, right? They don't want the Dutch to be able to have free acts, free economic access um, to Chinese markets. They also are demanding that, uh, get that the mistreatment of Chinese communities in colonial Indonesia stops, right? Because, um, you know, there's sort of this, well, there, you know, there's, there's all kinds of issues that are happening. Issues around in Chinese Indonesia.
0: and Southeast Asia is a long history of Yes.
1: This. Exactly. Prejudice
0: from both indigenous populations and colonizers. Yeah. and yes. yeah, yes,
1: exactly. So the Dutch essentially have put the Chinese populations into this sort of middle ground in terms of their legal rights, um, in terms of their legal standing in society, and are increasingly more punitive in terms of the kinds of um, residency permits that they need. They are um, deporting, more Chinese residents more and more for sort of baseless accusations. And so this group in China is saying, we demand that this kind of harassment of the Chinese community in colonial Indonesia stops. Yeah. Um, so I see it as being this su- such an interesting moment of this sort of global um, protest that happens where you have, you know, People protesters in China essentially boycotting the Dutch for the ways that these, um, you know, dia- diasporic Chinese communities are being treated in Southeast Asia. Um, so I think I, you know, I end the chapter on that just as a way to show how these maritime networks in the maritime world becomes like an important example of uh, and an important sort of. Um, What can I say? I I think in the book, I I call it um, the sort of floating, floating uh, face of empire abroad, right? That these, these protesters in China and along the Chinese ports who really have feel that they have very little power, actual power against sort of the infiltration of foreign economic interests into Chinese markets, um, that this is, you know, this is something that you can and you can sort of put, like put your anger, you know, face your anger towards and put this boycott towards these ships, which is really the only thing you can really see of the Dutch empire, right? The, the ships, they show up, they fly the Dutch flag, they have Dutch officers and Dutch captains on board. So that becomes this important target for really a, lo- a much larger statement about the state of China's position within right. um, the Imperial order during the
0: 1920s and 30s. And you also, you also note that the, um, the Dutch captains play an important role in the intelligence uh, gathering, yeah. that they are, they are sort of recruited by the the state and are filing reports. And, yeah. you know, there's a, yeah. there's a class division within the ship between the white Dutch captain yeah. and the non-white sailors and men. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: definitely. But, and part of what the captains also are responsible for doing is Um, alerting and staying in touch with the sort of foreign intelligence entities ashore, not just the Dutch foreign intelligence entities. So in Shanghai, the captains have to keep the different um, foreign police forces, the French Concession Police, the Shanghai Municipal Police, the British um, Criminal Intelligence Department that are all based in Shanghai. Dutch captains are responsible in sort of in staying in contact with those entities to warn them if something has happened on the ship before they leave, or if they've already left to then like contact them to tell them we just took away somebody who you've been looking for or whatever. So part of this chapter also talks about the intense surveillance networks that are happening between the French, British and uh, Dutch surveillance entities um, in Shanghai and uh, Hong Kong and other um, cities in in the in the region
0: yeah no I, I thought that was a really really great insight and there's been some other scholars who've worked on this sort of cooperation amongst the different european yeah. colonial powers yeah. in the, yeah. especially in the 20s and 30s um, yeah claire claire eddington has a, a book on colonial um psychiatry in vietnam and oh, yeah. shows how they went down to um uh french uh psychiatrists went down to um was it uh now it's um um just south of Jakarta, up in the hills, not Bandung, but um, yeah,
1: oh, Bautenzor, uh, oh, yeah, 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 which was Bubuting, Bautenzor,
0: Bautenzor, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how they they would go on missions down there to study yeah. what was going on, and yeah. and and Stoller's written on this too, this, this yeah. communication within these imperial systems, which yeah. segues very nicely into the last <laughs> chapter because yeah. there's another empire uh, that served the rising sun, uh, part of me um, in in Asia. <laughs> And that's this new threat from japan in the 20s and 30s and um the you know that obviously the japanese empire is threatening the european empires will lead to the pacific war which is after 42 is an assault on the european empires in, in southeast asia but you talk about the um the threat that japanese shipping poses to dutch shipping so could you mm, say a few words yes. that?
1: so i i i started this chapter um thinking that, okay, the argument I can sort of make is that Japanese aggression actually begins in the maritime world at the mid-1930s. Then as I got further into it, that was a little bit overstepping the argument. Um, But I am trying to say that there is an intense level of aggression that's coming from Japanese shipping companies towards Dutch shipping companies that begins in the early 1930s with the sort of expansion of Japanese economic power in the region that I do think is sort of the bellwether of the kind of, um, aggr- you know, the kind of aggressive tone that will only increase as we get closer to 1942, right? After 1940, really, like, you know, it's taken up to extreme levels. And essentially what I, what I mean is that in the 1930s with the global, um, de- you know, depression that happens, Japan becomes very, very powerful in terms of its economic relationship to colonial Indonesia because they are now flooding the Indonesian markets with their own manufactured goods. Um, which rises to by the time we get to the mid 1930s, is 25% of the um, imported goods into Indonesia are from Japan. Mm-hmm. And the Dutch have fallen from where they were, which was like 30%, down to only like 19%. So the Dutch mm-hmm. are actually um, sending fewer manufactured products than Japan is. And at the same time, the products that colonial Indonesia used to export to Japan, primarily sugar, is now no longer being. Being purchased by Japan, partially because Japan is growing its own um, sugar now in colonized Taiwan, but also partially because the, the the Netherlands stays on the gold standard until 1936, and so there there's a you know the the gilder is um, it, you know the products essentially just become too expensive. You can get sugar more cheaply from other areas mm-hmm. and other products from other areas. So, essentially, Japan becomes this very powerful. Um, entity economic entity trade entity in um in colonial indonesia and the dutch government enacts all of these sort of they begin with tariffs then they are then they enact trade quotas to try and lessen the power of japan power the power of japan's um trade Uh, all of this is only sort of partially successful and dutch shipping companies are very involved in this um, in this process because the dutch shipping companies are very upset that japan essentially relies on a trading network that keeps everything in japanese hands so all of the warehouses all of the shippers all of the retail stores are owned are japanese owned so the dutch shipping companies and the traders and the warehouses that they work with that are which are also owned by the dutch Feel that the system is very unfair now obviously mm-hmm. this is really ironic because this is what the dutch have been yeah, doing the, dutch,
0: yeah, this a, well, that's the whole irony of the, <laughs> right. the western opposition to <laughs> right. japanese right. encroachments into, into southeast asia and china and korea right
1: right, right. exactly so i mean in yeah. a sense this is like a the shipping in the shipping world it's a it's a mirror of you know sort of the larger um yeah. unfolding of what happens in the
0: 1930s have, have you seen mark driscoll's book um on the japanese empire um absolute erotic absolute grotesque the living the dead and the undead in japanese imperialism no, um, I it's, have it guess. is a fantastic book it's a wild book um, um i know that the japanese um uh, establishment was not very happy with the academic establishment was not happy with it but one of the many things he talked I mean, he goes into the, the japanese role in, in drug dealing in korea and yeah. so forth and one yeah. of the things he talks about in southeast asia is the way that the yakuza uh, worked with the, um, the the Japanese military and um, ja- uh, Japanese-owned brothels were sort of the the elite brothels in Southeast Asia um, were sites of uh, advertisement of Japanese manufactured goods, mm-hmm. and um, you know for the, for the for the elite sex workers you had to bring them presents. And what did, what did they want? You know they want Dutch products? No, and they want locally produced Indonesian products? No, they wanted. Nice Japanese products, and right next door to the brothel would be a toko would be a little shop selling Japanese products, so it was a way to to advertise and he argues that this is a this sort of like informal precursors of yeah. japan japan's expansion into the region it's a yeah really fabulous book,
1: yeah, um, that's great, yeah. yeah, so I mean it's interesting, right because uh you know I do think as that as that book as Riscoll's book sort of also is explaining that there's a lot of sort of these small incremental sort of changes that are happening in terms of the ways that japanese communities are existing in colonial indonesia Mm -hmm. as we start moving through the 1930s and And, and the pre of
0: empire there's not just december 7th 41 with the attack on the philippines and then into british malaya and the fall of singapore and there's just a longer process
1: totally and it's and it's even more you know in in terms of um I mean, a lot of, uh, also what I talk about in chapter six is like even more so, you know, about the ways that the, that Japanese um, shipping companies and other businesses are actively trying to, you know, get local Indonesian communities to like see any difficulties they have in terms of trade relations from their side. Like there's a lot of propaganda that's beginning. Also very early in the 1930s, Japanese propaganda that, you know, for instance, there's a shipping conference that happens in 1934, where um, both the Dutch and the Japanese um, shipping companies are, you know, putting out all of these newspaper articles while it's happening, or putting out all these circulars to try and get local communities to support their side of this like trade battle, the mm-hmm. shipping trade battle. So even these sort of what, see, what seemingly see like these sort of business, um propositions and these business moments in business like actually have this very intricate sort of you know cultural and social connection to local communities
0: yeah yeah. again another great chapter so again i just um love this book um so opens up so many windows and insights into this history so you've been really generous with your time and really appreciate that so i've just got two more questions for you before we let you go um, first, can you suggest two related books that the audience should read? In, ad- in addition, or after reading your book, what are two other books that you would recommend?
1: Sure. Um, so one is uh, Frances Steele's Oceania Under Steam. Um, Frances works at University of Wollongong, and she she looks at a lot of the same issues that I sort of raise about shipping, the role of shipping companies and sort of colonial expansion and the maintenance of colonial um, hegemony. She looks at that in the British context, largely with steamships. So it's in a period a little bit earlier than mine. But for people who are interested in Southeast Asia, I think that this is also interesting to look at how British shipping sort of expands the empire from South Asia all the way through uh, the Pacific. So that's one book. Mm-hmm. Another book I would recommend is by Nancy Schler, uh, who teaches in Israel, and that How do, you spell is, Schler?
0: do you know?
1: S C H uh, L E R. Okay. Um, and the name of the book is "Nation on Board." Uh, it came out. It's a it came out a few years ago, but that is a book about Nigeria's shipping industry, Ooh. and essentially, yeah. yes, the way that British it looks at the transition of. British shipping, and particularly the Elder Dempster um, Company, which sort of controlled British, what Western African shipping at the moment, the way that that, I know you wouldn't know. (laughs) Oh, sure. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Yeah. The way that um, that shipping, um, that shipping line sort of transitions into the decolonial, it's through decolonization. And it's really interesting because she sets up an argument that essentially shows how European shipping companies sort of hold on to their power for such an extended period of time and ultimately make it really nearly impossible for indigenous local shipping companies to take over through the decolonization process, even though that's apparently what was supposed to have happened. She really shows you how that becomes impossible and why nationalized shipping companies face such intense hurdles, and why ultimately in Nigeria the nationalized um, shipping project becomes like a larger, um, you know, em- symbol of the of the, the failure of decolonization
0: right, right. in Nigeria. Great, great. And what was that, what was the title? Na- Na- Nation, on board. Nation. Nation on board. Nation on board. Great, yeah. great. I'll, I'll look at those. Um, now, finally, what are you working on now, and what can we hope to see from you next?
1: Ah, it's a good question. Um, I have a few things that I'm working on. I, I um, Last summer was back in the archives in the Netherlands looking at some more business archives. I was looking at um, the forced deportation of um, workers from colonial Indonesia back to China uh, mm, because mm. it's one of the ways that the Dutch government used Dutch shipping companies was these forced deportations. So I'm looking at sort of the connection between colonial plantations and mining industries um, and the ways that they, they pair and partner with colonial shipping companies to actually control this, um, this population of uh, indentured workers prior to the 1930s and the way that that changes once you get into the 1930s. So that's one thing. I'm also looking more at like the history of crews
0: ships. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. And, yeah let and me know then, if you need a research assistant. Really.
1: <laughs> yes, please. I mean, and all of the implications that cruises have at yeah. this moment in time, you know, yeah. of, of all of the sort of considerations of cruise ships in terms of their connections with globalizations of, you know, pandemics of, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. all
0: of. Have you seen things. Elizabeth Becker's book on cruise ships?
1: I actually, I have not read it yet, but yeah, yeah. it is, it's, it's, it's waiting for me. <laughs> she, I mean,
0: she, you know, she wrote one of the great books on uh, the Khmer Rouge and actually yes. was one of the few foreign reporters, few foreigners allowed into Cambodia under um, the Pol Pot regime. Yeah. And almost, almost, was almost killed. Um, yeah. Was there, was there obviously for the bombing prior to 1975. So uh I was I was happy to see that she did research on cruise ships, although she, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's 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 yeah. a searing indictment of the cruise <laughs> ship industry. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> I've got so, a friend who's a executive with um um a certain unnamed uh, uh, major cruise line, and I have have not given that book to her.
1: Yes, yes exactly. But well, I think it's something that we need at this moment in terms of what's happening with our environment,
0: yeah, absolutely. and everything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Alexanderson, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really fun conversation on about a fantastic book.
1: Thank you so much. I I really appreciate you inviting me. Yeah. Thank
0: you. So this has been a conversation with professor Chris Alexanderson about her new book, Subversive Seas, Anti-Colonial Networks Across the 20th Century Dutch Empire out with Cambridge University Press in 2019. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University and this has been an episode of New Books in History a podcast on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.